This event was recorded at the 2018 Edinburgh International Book Festival. <coughs> Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this sunny Friday at the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name's Nick Barley, I'm director of the festival, and I get first dibs on authors who are coming to the festival that I would like to chair. So five or six events at the festival are mine, and these two authors are two of the ones that I chose, and I'm delighted Thanks, to introduce to you today, Donald, Donald Ryan and Kamala Shamsi. Now, I want to begin, before you give them a round of applause, with a quote from Ali Smith at this festival a few days ago. And I think perhaps they get to the heart of why we're sitting here together today. She said, fiction is one of our ways to get to truths that are really difficult to talk about, that we haven't yet been able to articulate or see yet, truths that we come to articulate via a story. We'll be talking this morning to these two amazing authors about their exceptional novels. Donald Ryan, author of pr three previous novels, but whose latest, this one, From a Low and Quiet Sea, has brought him huge attention thanks to stellar reviews and a Man Book Prize longlisting. And Kamala Shamsi, author of, what, six, maybe seven, seven other books? But joining us today is this year's winner of the Women's Prize for Fiction for her novel, Home Fire. They're going to join me today to discuss truth, I hope, lies, certainly, mythologies, and much more besides. So please join me in welcoming Donald Ryan and Kamala Shamsi. And uh, by the way, thank you, Kamala, yesterday for chairing a special event that we put on for Nehru's Kamut. Um, and I think it's relevant to mention that because, because somehow your, both of your books are, seem to be about the ability for people to travel in the world. So thank you for doing that. Pleasure. <laughs> thank you for... I mean, I think it's sort of wonderful for those of us... I ha haven't always had a British passport. Um, it's a relatively new thing in my life, so I know something of what it is when you run into problems with visas. And I think to have festivals that are really committed to the idea of getting writers over um, from wherever they might be and however difficult that is, I think it's, it's a really significant thing, possibly more now than it has been in a while. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Donald, you, you've been working in the civil service until very recently. Um, you too have, have had encounters with people who wanted to come and get, live in Ireland. Right? Yeah, well, um, I worked on, I guess, a daily basis as a labour inspector with migrants um, and people who were in Ireland legally and illegally, people who were being exploited, people who were exploiting people. And I got a, quite a clear picture of the places people had come from and the kinds of journeys they'd made. Yeah. Over 10 years, so it was kind of a process of, of aggregation of information, really. Yeah. So I want to begin, um, before going into the specific specifics of the stories, by asking you about origins, the origins of these books. Where, where did these books arrive from? Uh, Donald, we'll start with you. I'm not quite sure. I remember writing the first notes, or the first notes I have extant for this book um, date back to 2013, and that was quite a tumultuous year in my life. It's kind of, it's, it's a bit of a blur now, um, but it started with the, with the very final scene, actually, and with three men um, standing behind a minibus, not to give too much away about the last scene, it's really exciting, so. <laughs> don't give away, no spoilers, yeah. <laughs> That's just, you know, the, the setting. Um, and I worked back from there, really, um, and I had the characters and who they were, you know, and how they related quite clear in my head from the start. I'm not sure why exactly. But um, just like my crime writer friends, I started at the end and worked backwards. Right, okay. So you, 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 what arrived at you was the, the, the idea of a final scene. Mm. And then you unpicked that uh, and, and came to the characters who are in the novel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And what about you, Kamala? How, where did your, the, what were the origins of Home Fire? Um, the origins were I was having a coffee with um, a man who runs a theatre in London, a man called Jitendra Verma who I didn't know, he just sent me an email and said, come and see me. And he said, um, I'd like you to write a play for me. And I said, but I don't know how to write a play. And he said, yeah, I thought you'd say that. Um, so why don't you adapt a play? This was in 2014. He said, there's a, there's a real revival of Greek tragedy at the moment in, in the theater, and something like Antigone in a contemporary context could be interesting. And what I said was, that's interesting, I'll think about it. What I thought was, which one is Antigone? <laughs> I'm sure so lots of people in the audience <laughs> would just share that. So, so I went home and 
um, looked up Antigone, and Antigone starts with two sisters. Their brothers have died in a war, fighting on different sides. Um, one brother has been defending the city. He's going to be buried with full honors. That was less interesting. The other brother has been an enemy of the state. And so the ruler has said his body will not be buried. Um, instead, be left for the birds and the dogs to peck at. And of the two sisters, they both agree this is a completely unjust thing to do, no matter how treasonous this person might have been. But one sister says, what can we do? We're girls, it's the law. And we're the children of Oedipus, so there's all this guilt and shame attached to us in any case. And the other sister says, I will bury my brother. Um, and this was in September 2014. And in August that year, we in Britain had all come across that rather chilling figure of Jihadi John, who's a young Londoner who was present at those, or part of those ISIS executions. Um, and Theresa May had just said some three weeks ago, we're going to strip them of citizenship, these people who go away. And I thought, when you say this body cannot be buried, what you're saying is you have no claim to this earth, to this nation anymore. Um, and so the stripping of citizenship becomes a sort of metaphorical way of saying the same thing. And it just at that moment, the, that two and a half thousand year old story and things that were in the news headlines, I just saw, oh, it's, it's the same story. It suddenly yeah. swum into focus uh, and became it necessary. Feels, I mean, I mean again, you know, yeah. we, of course, memory is faulty, but I do remember it as just being, that's it. That's the story. Right, yeah. right. So you, you were consumed with the urge, an urge to tell some kind of truth about what you saw happening in the world today through the lens of a, of a classical story. I think I had the urge to try and figure out some kind of truth, not to tell it because that would assume I knew it. Um, and so it was more a question of, and it was also, you know, at this point I was less than a year into citizenship. It was also a point of sort of trying to understand this country and, and what it meant to be a citizen and the ways in which citizenship could be taken away. Um, but also what is going on in these families where someone is going off to join ISIS and then there are families being left behind. Mm. Um, so it was, it was a more a question of wanting to understand, wanting to figure out what, is, what are the truths behind these sort of, because let's face it, the, the news coverage was, and the political response was, there was a sort of note of hysteria of, so here's this medieval barbaric thing that we cannot understand. And as a novelist, you, you see we cannot understand, and you think, yeah, we can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or at least yeah. I want to try to, uh, yeah. to understand yeah. it through yeah. writing about it. Yeah. Great, well, well, we'll meet some of the characters in Home Fire in a moment, but I want to turn to you, Donald. Um, I mean, this is your fourth novel, and and I, I must I have to admit that, that your writing, I totally adore your writing. Oh, thanks, but in your previous novels, I mean, I love the thing about December particularly, but your, your novels tend to be about characters in Ireland, often marginalised characters. And there's, there's, there's often a sense that, that, you, that the space in which you really write is an Irish rural space. I think I'm right in saying yeah. that. This novel, uh, From a Low and Quiet Sea, in, instantly departs from, from that palette that you've used before with the introduction of another character, a character of Farouk. Do you want to tell us about, about Farouk? Sure. Um, Farouk came about, really, um, from my experience, I guess, um, speaking to people who had travelled to Western Europe, you know, the lucky ones who made it across the Mediterranean. And I met um, eight families from Syria who had settled in a town called Turles, which is about 15 miles from where I grew up a few years ago. And I did an event um, that could have gone terribly wrong because I'd written a story called Long Puck, which is set in Homs. And it, I, did no, <clears throat> I did no research about Homs at all. I said to myself, well, it's surely dry and it's surely dusty. I'll have dryness and dust. That'll be fine. <laughs> That'll be my setting. You know, that's my verisimilitude. Beautiful. Um, and so I was invited to read my story called Long Puck to a group of Syrian people. And I was terrified and I couldn't say no. And as I read, I started to perspire and to turn more and more red, and I, I couldn't read the audience's faces, and I was terrified. And after I'd finished reading, and there was an Arabic translation um, on a huge um, screen to my left, and afterwards a lady said, Donald, I don't believe your story, I'm afraid. It does not ring true. Those events just don't ring true. And it turned out she was from Turles. <laughs> She'd never been to Syria, just like me. <laughs> 
And a beautiful Syrian lady who perhaps was just being extremely kind said, I'm very surprised to hear Donald hasn't been to Homs because he got it so exactly right. Yeah, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you didn't no. see the audience's face turning red and perspiring as they listened to the story. No. <laughs> but afterwards, um, my dad and um, a gentleman from Syria were, were talking, they were about the same age. I, I reckon the man was in his 70s and so was Dad at the time. And they were talking and they just seemed so alike. And Dad, of course, spoke no Arabic and the man spoke no English. And they had this conversation in a series of gestures and smiles and nods that went on for a while and was lovely. And Dad managed to garner that this man had led his family um, from Syria to Jordan and to Ireland. Um, and it was, he had an amazing story. And I heard some things about Syria that night, like the fact that people in Syrian towns often changed street names to make migrants feel more at home. There was a welcome imperative. Um, and I, you could feel this warmth, but I didn't hear any story quite like Farouk's um, until I read a story, that story in The Guardian. I mean, the story, the actual mechanics of the story, the setting, what happens, were taken directly from a new story. But that allowed me to write the story of Farouk. But I think my experience of speaking to people from places like Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan over 10 years gave me a kind of a, a good grounding in how to go about it. Right, yeah, yeah. You'd also written a radio play as well. That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was kind of based on Farouk's daughter, actually, from her point of view. Right. Yeah, and it was kind of... I think it's, it's, it's sometimes easy to traumatise yourself as you write. And then, and then to feel, well, I have no right to feel this trauma. I have no right to feel the sadness because mm. this didn't happen to me. I'm, imagining, I'm making it up, you know. It's, and you can feel quite almost exploitative. And there's always a guilt that attends this kind of enterprise. But then I think it's something we're, we're obliged to do as writers. Yeah. So, so if I've got it right then, from, from just reading one news article about this person... No, one of many. It was that, that news article right. in particular as a story stood out to me. Okay. And mostly because it was, it was reported in a, a fine but quite perfunctory way. It was quite a short story. Right. But this doctor who'd given all of his money to a person he presumed to be, it's an awful phrase, a kind of high-end trafficker because of, the way, because of his bearing, of the way he did his business, of the, the promises he made. I mean, he was the devil. And, you know, he said, this journey across the sea will be akin to a cruise for you and your family. You know, my, my vessel is a high-quality vessel. You know, I have all the appropriate licenses. It turned out to be, you know, a, an old wooden fishing boat. Um, and there was no crew. No captain. There was no captain. There was a GPS system locked to the wheel. The passengers locked in the hold and the boat was set adrift. Hit stormy water and, and sank. Yeah. I mean, imagine being a human who can do that to other humans. I can't imagine it, but you can try to imagine it. Yeah. So in 50 beautifully wrought pages in, in the first section of the book, you tell that story of Farouk and his wife and daughter and their decision to take a journey on this boat, not, not knowing what's about to, to mm. uh, overcome them, I suppose. Um, fantastic little, little piece of writing. But then the novel proceeds in a completely different direction with a completely different character, Lampy. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, autofiction is a phrase, I don't like it, but it's, it's kind of popular these days. There's a lot of myself in Lampy, I have to admit, and people I know, and it's a very familiar place, it's a very familiar setting, but I mean, but Lampy's struggles are kind of universal, I think, you know, and it's just kind of a... Lamp Lampy's a young guy, he's, he's driving a minibus for... He's broken-hearted, he's adrift, yeah. he, he, he's never known his father. I mean, the, the story itself, I mean, my dad and I um, were, were great friends, but I know how it is not to have a father, you know, um, from experience of, of people close to me. And I kind of, there's a, that element goes through the three stories, I think, you know, this element of being a man, how it is to be a man, you know, how it is to try to, and it's, it's very strong theme in, in Home Fire as well, I think, um, and, and how it is to try to be like your father, even not knowing your father. Yeah. You know, you can see the struggle of Parvey to be like his dad, who he'd never met really. Yeah. And that kind of fascinated me and was something I felt a kind of urge to write about. Yeah. And that's another 50 beautifully wrought pages mm. with a very different voice. Uh, and then, then the, the third part of the novel, another character arrives on the scene, another 50 pages yeah. about John. John's a lobbyist, and lobbyist is a term that got, has a kind of a, an abhorrence attached to it now in Ireland because of the amount of corruption we uncovered. I don't know if we uncovered it properly, but you know, we, we realised that political lobbying was kind of a, a dirty game in Ireland, all through the 70s, 80s, 90s. Huge amounts of money were transferred between people, um, you know, for political favours, through lobbyists, and it became this kind of almost satanic thing, to be a lobbyist. And even the word itself, lobbyist, is kind of a sibilant hiss. You know, it's reptilian. 
<laughs> and I know, of course, I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's, it's this, this certain type of lobbyist we had in Ireland, you know, the kind of wink and nod, the wink and elbow language of the light, as Kevin would describe it, you know, the kind of backhand transferring of the brown envelope for penny permission. It, it all came down to property and this notional um, explosion of property prices. It all started with, 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 with dirty tricks, with lobbying, with land being rezoned through corruption. And people like that, again, fascinated me. And I, you know, I met people like John in the book who were absolutely, like, really attractive humans, you know, people whose company you really wanted to be in, who, who would actually make you forget all your troubles while you're in their, in their company. You know, I mean, and it, it, it reminds me of the story of, of, you know, all of us, of the devil accosting Jesus in the desert, you know, and saying, look what you can have. You know, it's so beautiful, you can have all this. And I, maybe it's a tad unfair now to say that they're satanic, but... Um, <laughs> there is that whole thing of, of the devil coming with a smile and being attractive, you know. And that kind of person fascinated me. But of course, they're people, they're humans, they were children once. You know, they have all these this internal tumult that we all have. I mean, no, one's, no one's completely bad or, or good. Yeah. And I think uh, John is forgiven in the book. Do you think? I, yeah, I hope so. I mean, I'm very forgiving well, myself. Let's, so. not give, let's not give away <laughs> the end. Um, as you said earlier, the, the final section of the book is, is where, where the idea for the book started. And, and in a sense, what one realizes, having read the book, I hope you'll read it, is that, that these three 50-page sections are a kind of teasing out mm. of, of the knot of, of the kind of very emotional and, and heartbreaking ending, which has been teased out into these three characters who, who you know somehow are about to come together into this tangled mess of reality, which, is, uh, which, which seems impossibly... It's an impossible coincidence, and yet it all yeah. seems to work beautifully. Um, but what I wanted to read out to you is, if you don't mind, is what Kit Duval, what, in fact one of the festival authors who came to the festival this year, said about your novel. Um, it's just a short quote. She said, Donald Ryan writes characters so well that as a reader you think, I've met that man, or I know that woman. But as a writer, you simply wonder, how does he do it? From a low and quiet sea is brutal and beautiful. These carefully crafted portraits, deep and real, tied together, are fashioned by a true artist. Oh, that's lovely. So that's a lovely thing. <laughs> and, and so to bef I wanted to say that to you because before we turn to Carmela, I just wanted to ask you to give us a very short reading and perhaps explain where From a Low and Quiet Sea the title comes from. This is a very short reading. Um, and apologies for my nasal delivery, actually. Um, my my uh, sinuses run with the tides of the weather, I'm afraid. Yeah, um, this, it came from um, one of my teenage poems um, that I thought had all been destroyed or hidden properly. Um, it turns out my, my dad had been stashing them in the attic of, of our house, of their house. And so um, the title comes from a poem that's read in class. I suppose it would have been the early 1960s, um, and John, the future lobbyist, becomes very jealous of a, of a boy in his class because he seems to have this lovely life and this lovely, easy relationship with his mum and dad. And he's kind of effortlessly popular and handsome. But the, uh, the verse that the boy reads out in class is just this. Armoured, they came from the east, from a low and quiet sea. We were a naked rabble throwing stones. They laughed and slaughtered us. So it's just about the Norman invasion of Ireland, really. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Is> that <all>? <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> Please, just don't clap that. <laughs> Doesn't deserve it. Well, I'm not sure whether that's a, uh, an appropriate moment <laughs> or not <laughs> to turn to you, Cameron. Sorry, I've uh, ruined everything. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't want to find out, I want to find out about the characters in your book, but I'd like also, if you don't mind, to read you a quote, which was, uh, I started with Ali Smith talking about truth at the beginning of the event, and she also wrote these words about your novel, Home Fire. Occasionally, you know that one of the writers alive at the same time as you has written the book they were born to write. Home fire has little light that will never go out. Shamsi's version of Antigone reveals the ancient tragedy we're living now. She's nice, said Ali Smith. <laughs> <laughs> She's wonderful, isn't she? So uh, your previous novels, many of them I think have been historical novels, but uh, you've explained why you wanted to write about now. How did you go about that? How, how did you turn the Antigone myth into ca characters right now? Um, well, partly they sort of did it for me. I mean, when I first thought, you know, I'm going to, and I quickly realized I'm not going to do this as a play because I don't know how to write a play this in my next novel. Um, and I did think, well, you know, somewhere Antigone will be in there, but I'll get rid of 
as much of it as necessary. Um, and in the end, discovered that I didn't have to get rid of that much of it, but that it was sort of... Someone said, is it sort of like the skeleton of the novel? And I said, no, it's more like the marrow in wow. the bones <laughs> of the novel. Um, and so the five distinct characters came from Antigone, that there were these three siblings, um, a brother, two sisters, and there was a powerful father and his son, and the son was involved with one of the sisters. Um, and so that sort of came about. Um, and then beyond that, I don't know, the, the invention of character is always a slightly odd thing. You, I, mean, I, I think different people have different ways of doing them. I literally write them into being uh, most of the time. But what was different with this one, because it's a novel in five sections and each section is from the point of view of a different character, um, so I started to write the first section, which is Isma, which is the older sister. Um, and she I sort of knew immediately. There are some characters who just arrive fully formed and others you don't. And I knew her immediately that this was... Um, actually, it started with wanting to reclaim that character from the, the play. Because in the play, the Antigone is the defiant sister. Mm. Um, she's the one willing to take on the law. She's the one who stands up for things. Um, and her sister, as many says, you know, we're just women, you know, we, what can we do? Um, we have to obey the law. And is always sort of talked about as being sort of a kind of uninteresting, compliant figure. But I was reading the Anne Carson translation um, of it, which is even more spare than any other version. Mm. And there's a bit when Antigone says to her sister, well, I'm going to go and bury my brother, and, you know, and they know that Antigone is likely to be killed for that, for defying the law in that way. Um, and she says to her sister, well, you've decided you're not going to help me. You know, what do you care now what I do? And her sister says four words, I'll be so lonely. And that was where Isma came from, is that she's looking at her sister thinking, you are the only family I have left. How do I protect you? And Isma, as this older sister was born. Um, it was much later I discovered that Ismeni is the younger sister. Yeah. Um, yeah. But to me, she was m very clearly the older sister, the, the one who had in some ways raised her younger siblings. Um, and one has gone and, and made this terrible choice, and the other one is now going to throw her life away. And all she's thinking is, I have to protect you. Um, and the burden of um, having raised them, having in some way suspended her own life in order to raise these younger two, and now wanting to live her life, saying, now they're gr grown up. I can go and be who I want to be, do what I want to do. And on the other hand, there's, no, I still have to be mother, sister yeah, yeah. to them. Um, so it all started with her. Um, and so the other characters in that first, because the that first section is entirely from her perspective, I saw them all through her eyes. Mm. Um, and then it became this interesting thing which I'd never done before, which was when I was then writing their versions, I had to work out to what extent she sees them clearly. Um, is she right about them? And with every section, as you're seeing m different of those characters through more and more eyes, you'd figure who is this person really as opposed to the way they're being seen by all these other people who yeah. do or don't know them. It's so funny you should say that because as an aside, I've been, mm. chatting, I've been talking with Colm Tabin, mm. the Irish writer. Yeah. He's, he's writing a monologue about yeah. the same character. Yeah, which is a fantastic monologue. That's right. Yeah. Have you seen it? Yeah. Um, which I hope we'll be able to put on at the festival next year. Mm. And he says, said to me the same thing, that this woman, is, she's the observer. Antigone is the kind of loud, noisy, yeah. she's the, all the action. Mm. But here's this woman, mm. the sister, the pale sister who's watching. She's quiet, but mm. she's seeing clearly yeah. what's going on. And, and it's, I, I thought it was telling that you started with this also with this, this character. Yeah. Um, because I think, and it was interesting because, so Ali has done a version of Antigone as well for children. Ali Smith. Ali Smith. Um, and her version also had as many as the older sister. And at some point I, I was talking to her, I said, I said, Ali, did you know that we both switched the birth order? And she said, but she's so clearly the older sister. Exactly. I said, I know, she so clearly <laughs> is. Antigone's um, like the young yeah. kid, isn't she? Yeah, yeah she's, you know, she's sort of, um, that thing of the passionate, you know, she's 19 years in mine, um, that thing where it's just all feeling and what is right and wrong, um, 
and we must act, you know, we can't sit by and the other one just saying, just seeing consequences, consequences, consequences. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Isma, who is the, the, mm. the contemporary version of, of the pale sister, mm. um, is on her way to live in America. So she's leaving Britain yeah. uh, and leaving her family behind. Yeah, so she, you know, in, in her story is that when she, she's at university, she loves university, she wants to carry on doing it, and then her mother dies, her father's already long gone. There are these 12-year-old twins, and she basically stops everything, goes and works in a dry-cleaning shop, and raises these, these twins, and then they turn 18, they can, you know, do without her, or not, um, and she basically just wants to go and be able to be, you know, she's 27 at yeah. this point, seems much older, and, and just wants to go and, and live a very quiet life with her books somewhere else, away from all the family Educating herself at the drama. university. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. But, but. So, that, yes. <laughs> well, before we get to the but, there, yeah. there she also then meets Eamon, an, yeah. another key character in the story. Yeah, so she meets Eamon, and it's a thing where you are two Brits abroad, and you would never have spoken to each other if you'd met in London, which is where they both live. You'd, there's too much that is obviously separating you. You would quite likely not have found yourself in the same neighborhoods, but they're in a small town in Massachusetts. She hears an English accent, a London accent, and she's just homesick in that moment. Mm. Um, and she recognizes him because he's the son of, um, at this point, a very senior Tory Pakistani Muslim migrant um, politician, who then becomes Home Secretary. <laughs> <laughs> We're trying to avoid having Sajid Javid <laughs> yeah. in our minds at this point. <laughs> this is before Sajid Javid was Home Secretary. This right? was well before Sajid Javid was Home Secretary. <laughs> I was sitting thinking, really, a Tory son of Pakistani b Muslim migrants becoming Home Secretary? I don't think that's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's imagine it into being and see what happens. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, and yeah. ironically, another yeah. ironic coincidence, yeah. I think Sajid Javid is not, is of Muslim heritage, mm. but he's not religious himself. Yeah, in the same way as the character is. In the same way as the character Sort of says, you know, well, I may have been born into it, but it's got nothing to do with me. Right. Yeah. So Eamon's, Eamon's dad is, is this character, this, yeah. this politician, who's, who's busy denying that, that, that Islam is, is of importance to him personally. Yeah, he's sort of, you know, seen as, you know, he's very explicitly set out to be the... the that person who is even going to be, as I say, strong on security. He's going to be stronger on security, particularly towards Muslims, uh, than anyone else could possibly ever be. Um, and then there's Eamon, who's his son, who's, um, you know, just a rather good-looking posh boy um, <laughs> with an overachieving father who sort of knows he can never quite live up to it, so why bother? Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. And, but also very appealing and attractive in all kinds of ways, you know, with, with very good manners, um, yeah. which she sort of likes. Right. Yes. So the, yes. And these characters are kind yeah. of the framework mm. within which then your Antigone character and her brother can, yeah. their, their story can unfold. So yeah. let's, let's tell, tell us about Parvez. So, without giving too much away. Anika. So, the, the, so they're the twins, they're 12 years old, and, and um, Isma's their older sister. Their, their father, they never knew. Um, he was a jihadi, he died on his way to Guantanamo. Um, so the twins never knew him at all. Isma briefly knew him, but not for very long. Um, and they grew up, and it, you know, it goes back to that thing of you know, fathers and sons. Um, so the sister, Anika, the, the, the twin girl, takes the attitude of, he deserted us, he has nothing to do with our lives, we have nothing to do with him, he's not going to prey on my mind. I'm not going to think about him. He made his decision. And she really is able to just pretend he never happened in some way. Whereas Pervez, who grows up in this house full of women, has no male figure around and just has this need in him for the father, for a father figure. Um, and because he, everyone else in his family treats the father as something to be ashamed of, someone you must never speak of, and because it's one of the things that if people knew who or what your father was, they would look at you a certain way. So, you know, we have to hide all that. So his father is something that he can only, he's told to only be ashamed of. Um, and then comes along my Farouk, we both yeah, have Farouks, yeah. um, who comes along and says, actually your father was this brave warrior who fought for 
justice um, and was a wonderful man and who, as he was fighting for justice, was thinking about you all the time. Um, and don't you want to follow in his footsteps? And then these terrible things were done to him in, in uh, Bagram, in Gu on his way to Guantanamo. These are the crimes that the British government committed against these people. Um, and you're the son. And so what are your responsibilities? Um, and that, you know, sets him adrift in certain yeah, ways. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know how far we want to go with that without giving away <laughs> too much. You should read the book, the amazing book. Yeah. But, but uh, I suppose that the, one of the things which happens in the book is, is that you as a writer are having to try to imagine mm. what life must have been like, must be like, mm. if you're living as a, somebody in the Islamic State, mm. a, a, as an immigrant to the Islamic State, mm. a, as a British Pakistani yeah. import mm. into that Islamic State yeah. system. Yeah. Um, yeah, which, you know, it, I've never had less fun researching something. Um, but it was interesting because there were, it wasn't just the researching, it was the what do I want to look at. Um, and there was part of me that thought, I know there are images there that I, I am not going to see because then I won't be able to unsee them and I don't want them in my head. Um, and then there was also that part of me thinking, so I'm recently a British citizen from Pakistan, Muslim background, and I'm going to Google ISIS recruitment. <laughs> Probably not a good idea. Um, I can see where you're going with that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but actually it was really very distressing at a certain point to realize the extent to which I had a surveillance state in my head. Um, and the extent to which I thought, I know I'm just a novelist looking for things to, but, but there was this constant anxiety around what can I look at? And I did, you know, would think, so if MI5 comes knocking at my door, what am I going to say? And, and the kind of things that I was going to say was, but I've been on Radio 4. <laughs> 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 you know, like that's a badge of honor these <laughs> yeah, days. You know, yeah. Um, so yeah. So there, it was a it was a very problem. I was very very lucky because one thing that happened just as I was starting to think about the novel um, is the writer Gillian Slover, who's a close friend, was commissioned by the National Theatre to do a verbatim play, which was wonderful, called Another World: How We Lost Our Children to Islamic State, uh, which meant she, white person, was going out doing all this research for the play. Um, Okay. And I said, Julia, and she said, you know, and she was incredibly generous and, and was telling me what to look at and, and who to, to read and, and all kinds of things. And, and that was really, really useful um, mm. just to know how to get started. Yeah. But it, it ended up being actually very interesting because I realized that, you know, it's that question of truth um, is I had such preconceptions about the kinds of people who went, or rather the ways in which they were lured. I think we had this very stark idea that Islamic State sells violence, and they sell it to people who are interested in violence. Um, and when you actually look at their propaganda, you realize it's much more terrifying than that. They are way smarter yeah. than we're giving them credit for here. They don't want to set up a terrorist organization only. They wanted to set up a state. They wanted doctors. They were selling hope. They were selling, they want doctors, they want electricians, they, I mean, they want everyone. Um, so they were, they, this, they had packaged this utopia yeah. um, in a way that would appeal to many, many different kinds of people. And that was the, the terrifying part, realizing how good they were doing this and how slick and how many different kinds of people yeah. Um, yeah. they could draw. And particularly with, you know, teenagers, because so many of those who went were teenagers. I mean, Farouk's um, seduction of yeah. Pervez is, is terrifying. And yeah. the moment where he says, you know, your father's name, wasn't Adil Pasha, it was, it was father of Pervez. Yeah. And he has him, in that moment he has him. Mm. You know, and everything mm. else is kind of ancillary to that, it builds yeah. it up. But. Yeah. And then, you know, the, the way it unwinds when they're there mm. in, in the state, and he starts to look around and realize yeah. that Farouk, he didn't, to know what Farouk had done. Yeah. But I mean, I took the book quite personally because I gave Pervez my, my son's face. Mm. And of course, was traumatized and devastated by the book. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's just, it's incredibly powerful. Yeah. Yeah. But it is, to me, that is terrifying that, that, mm -hmm. to make something so complex, you know, to, to present it in such stark terms, in such yeah. clear terms. Yeah. yeah. And thank God for it. Yeah. And there's, there's something about, the, about your book. Um, uh, your book, Donald, is about threads which get woven together or unwoven if, if you go backwards. Carmel, I think the structure of your book is more like windows. We, ha we have different windows through which we're looking at 
things we don't really know uh, as readers. I mean, I think I, I don't know if anybody's been uh, anywhere near the Islamic State or had any kind if of. If you do, don't say so. <laughs> no. <laughs> but we're looking through a window onto a world yeah. we do not know that is of otherness, mm. and yet the different perspectives that your characters give this world is is very telling about the way in which different people understand the stories. So that when, when Pervez gets into trouble, as, I suppose the Antig- those of you who know the Antigone myth will know what kind of trouble he's going to get into. It, uh, what happens back in the UK is, is a perception of this guy as a terrorist, as somebody who, who is, is no longer wanted. His citizenship is renounced. Mm. And, and so, so it's, it's these perspectives that you offer as a novelist that, yeah. that, that seem to me so striking, these windows through which to look at, at otherness. Well, I, I was struck, remember, in the early days, particularly with how many of those going were teenagers. And I thought, I mean, we remember when we were teenagers, you, you know, there were, it was not the wisest time of anyone's life. Um, and it was, it's very easy at that point if someone is really, again, you know, that satanic being mm. um, who is ruthless wants to turn you this way or that way, yes. finds a vulnerability, um, that the ease with which that can be done to someone who is still really a child, um, and that there had to be more than one way of ha- having a conversation around that. Um, and then that other question, which is that really tricky question of, and then what is the responsibility of the state? Yeah. Um, you know, do you just say, well, you've done this, so now you are no longer anything to do with us and just disappear? Um, Or do you say, we believe in systems of justice, and if you've committed a crime, then there will be a punishment, but it'll be back in your country, um, that we will figure it out. And if the crime has been committed to you in some way, we will look at that as well. and how will we look at your family? Because I think part of what happened is that the family members feel, imp- there's, there's this idea of, you know, if, you, if your brother or your son has gone off to join these kinds of group, surely that has something to do with home life. Surely it's got something to do with the way you raise them. Um, and so the families who in many cases are the ones who have really lost someone, um, then find themselves being treated as the guilty party. Um, as well. And so all those kinds of, of stories as well I was interested in. Yeah. Um, but I was also interested in the ways we can not know the people we know. Uh, right. You know. That, that's yeah. both on a pers- at a personal level, but also at a, as a kind of individual versus state level. Yeah. Uh, so the question of identity, I suppose, mm-hmm. is, is partly at the heart of your story. Who am I? And it brings us to... Uh, a reading, uh, um, if you wouldn't mind giving us a short sure. reading. Who, uh, this is Isma, um, who we, we thought that her, we think her identity should be really solid. Uh, she's, yeah. she's, she's a smart one. Yeah. Um, it's normally quite as short as journalist reading. Um, and this is right at the beginning, she's trying to, she's just leaving, she's a British citizen leaving Britain to go to America, but she gets pulled into an interrogation room at Heathrow, um, and a man comes in. She's sitting in the interrogation room. Um, a man comes in and places a voice recorder between them. Do you consider yourself British? The man said. I am British. But do you consider yourself British? I've lived here all my life. She meant there was no other country of which she could feel herself part. But the words came out sounding evasive. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah. Suddenly, this person who's sure of her own citizenship, mm. sure of herself as, as a British person, is not only is the state asking her directly, "Are you British?" Mm. but she's beginning to, to doubt immediately. I think the question is if the state, you know, when people talk about sort of identity issues, they always talk as though it's the person who is having the identity issue. Um, you know that it's it's the in this case the the British Muslim saying, am I really British? But, but actually, I think a lot of times it's coming from outside is that other British people are saying, can you really be British? And then that makes you think, what, what does that mean? Yeah. What else am I? What, else, what do you think I am? Um, and if enough of you think I'm not this thing, what does that mean? 
Yeah. You know, then what does British mean? If enough British people say, actually, you are a child of migrants, you're Muslim, you're from Pakistani background, your skin color is this way, we're not sure you're, you're really British, British, British. Yeah, where are you the, really from? Yeah, where are you really from? <laughs> then what does that do internally? Right. Even if someone has never lived anywhere else, never even really, in her case, pretty much visited anywhere else. Yeah. And then, of course, later, yeah. in, later in the novel, without giving too much away, yeah. the Home Secretary is forced to make a similar choice yeah. about the character, Pervez, mm. about his identity. Mm. And he's forced to make a very striking choice yeah. in renouncing his citizenship. Mm. He has to give him another citizenship. Yeah. He, has to, he has to push him away mm. to be the property of Pakistan. Yeah. Um, it's a thing There's you know... I don't know how many people here know all the rules around stripping citizenship. It used to be if you're a dual national, such as I am, then the British state can strip you of your citizenship at the discretion pretty much of the Home Secretary if they decide you're you know, unsafe or no good for Britain. Theresa May extended those laws, um, and it was around, you know, really primarily around people who'd gone fight. So now it's if you can be shown to have a claim to a second passport then the British government can strip your citizenship. Who are the people who can be shown to have a claim to another passport? It's largely the children and grandchildren of migrants. Um, because they're, fa you know, so in Pakistan, if, you're, if you had a grandparent or a parent who's Pakistani, then by the right of descent, you, you can have a. So Sajid Javed can have his citizenship stripped <laughs> by the Home Secretary, which is him, um, <laughs> on the basis that his parents were migrants. Whereas. Theresa May or Amber Rudd, the previous Home Secretary, their citizenship is absolutely assured, no one can take it away. Yeah. So it's this in weird and not very nice two-tier level of citizenship very um, weird. that has come up, even among those who were born here, maybe their parents were born here, yeah. um, you know. Yeah. So this whole and idea, what, what, does that, what is citizenship? Right, yeah. exactly. And, yeah. and turning back to you, Donald, before we uh, move <laughs> open up to questions, uh, oddly enough, I think each of the three characters in From a Low and Quiet Sea Farouk, Lampy, John, these key characters, all of them are at some, in some way or other questioning their identity. And yet, paradoxically, Farouk, who's arriving in Ireland, seems to be the most certain of who he is in, in some strange way. That both Lampy and John are questioning themselves, not, not because of their nationality or citizenship, but they're asking, mm. who am I, in a very profound and, and affecting way. Whereas Farouk uh, always seems to be solidly Syrian and he understands he's very sad about losing, losing members of the family. He knows who he is. It seemed enough for me actually at the time writing the book that Farouk was going to separate himself from the core of himself in the book because he's shattered and atomized by grief. And you know, when Farouk reappears in the novel, he is he's, he's almost on the point of insanity, you know, and he has kind of he has kind of had to construct this, this new person to um to, to get through what he suffered. I mean, because what he suffered to me is almost unimaginable. And mm. I, I can imagine it, and I, I can never be sure I've written it properly. You know, I've, I've suffered trauma in my life, but not to that extent. Um, but I think it was enough for, for that separation. And I think to uh, introduce um, a struggle um, when it comes to identity for Farouk would have been too much for the novel, for, the, for something you know, so slim. It's maybe a different book, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I do tend to write kind of fractured characters who are, who are struggling to, to kind of to, to root themselves, to anchor themselves in the world. Probably because that's the way I've always felt myself. You know, I've always struggled to kind of to, to fit in wherever I go. And I think that's, that's all writers. I'm not, it's not kind of a, a poor me kind of thing at all. I think it's the way writers are. You yeah. tend to become a writer because you have wondered about things, because you've never quite felt rooted or anchored or quite safe anywhere. And you've always wondered what it's like to be somebody else. Yeah. No, not to any terribly traumatic degree, you know, it's just a matter of maybe, you know, a slight childhood trauma or a move or a, a kind of situation where you're kind of slightly on the outside. Yeah. Whereas with Farouk, I think readers will feel crashing sympathy and sort of horror, horror at, at what overcame them in that horrible wooden mm -hmm. boat. Lampy, on the other hand, I for one felt a, a real sense of, you know, I wanted to hug him. This is a guy who, who doesn't really know much about his own past. Um, he's, he's heartbroken, he doesn't quite know why he, the love of his mm. life left him. Yeah. You know, he's driving a minibus towards a, towards a corner on an icy road and he's wondering what he might do. This is the kind of thing that has preoccupied me from a young age. People who are on a precipice, 
you know, I mean, it, it, lumpy it seems at the start when you read it, this is just a bit of a laugh. Who the hell is this guy? You know, why is this clown all of a sudden in the story? I mean, and for me, it's a very serious thing. You know, I, I love lumpy. I know people like Lampy who are right on the edge of death all the time from day to day, you know. And in that moment, there's a moment in, in, in the book where Lampy could die. Yeah. But Lampy's the kind of character who will not elicit sympathy from people. You know, he'll what? just be seen. You're wrong. No, no, You're in, wrong. The, no in the book he will. Oh, in, within, yeah. within the book. <laughs> and I think, yeah. hopefully, the way I present, the way I portray Lampy and the way I present him, he will elicit. But although I've seen people review the book who have said, I, that Lampy guy, what the hell? I mean, I didn't feel, <laughs> I didn't feel a shred of sympathy for yeah. him, making him screw himself, you know. <laughs> Which I think is terribly unfair. But I mean, he is, in, this, he, he is in, a, in a very dangerous place. I know. I mean, there were moments in the book when I was thinking, Donald, please don't, don't make him do this. <laughs> 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 we won't reveal what, what, he, what eventually happens. But, uh, uh, so, but, all right, before questions, one last little thing. Uh, these books have both met with an extraordinary reception. Uh, 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 Carmela, yours is, is, is now out in paperback, so it's had a much bigger, longer time to have a reception. But both of them have had a reception. What have you learnt from, from the responses to these novels about, about what you wrote and its, and its meaning in the world? It's so interesting, the, the different responses. And the, sort of very early on, within sort of 24 hours, I had two people come to me and say polar opposite things which made me feel so pleased and one was um, an, a woman a, another writer who's British um, who's white who said I thought I knew the country I was living in um, and you showed me bits of it I didn't know um, and another one is a friend of mine who is um, British but came here as a refugee from Afghanistan from a Muslim background um, and she said it's the first time in a novel I felt such familiarity and recognition um, of the Britain I live in. And I thought, well, you know. Wow. That's really okay, something, that's, isn't it? That's yeah. lovely. That's yeah. what I would want. Yeah. yeah. And you, Donald, uh, what about you? Well, I decided a few books back to try to hide from um, reactions to my books unsuccessfully. I take a peek now and again, and then I get totally immersed in it, and then sometimes get elated and sometimes depressed. But similarly, I mean, I've had kind of polar opposite reactions. Um, some people saying, you know, you would no right to write this book. Um, you got it totally wrong. And, you know, a, an acquaintance who's a, a journalist from Syria said, it's, I got it exactly right. But you never know. I mean, I, I've always said that, that fiction is a, an act of, of, of guessing and extend, it's extending empathy past its natural limit mm. as much as you can. Yeah. And you never know. And I mean, and that's the thing, you see, you can't dictate. It, it'd be lovely to say. And I, I know writers who actually sometimes preface their stories or their novels with an explanation to the reader of how you should take this book. This is what I intended. <laughs> Even John Updike has done it. Really? Which, you know, with a reprint of, of, of Rabbit Run. Hmm. This is what I meant. This is what you should take from it. You know, mm. don't mind the critics or other people. This is what I meant. You know, and yeah. I don't think you should do that with art. It's, art exists once it, once it leaves mm. you and it has to be um, seen in whatever way a person wants to see it. Right. Okay. Well, I don't know how many of you have read either of these books, but I'd love to hear, love to see some hands up for, for starters. And um, we've got a roving mic, so let's just see how many, roughly how many questions we're likely to have. I can see a couple, three, four, brilliant. Okay, let's come down here for starters. We've got four questions, so we'll make them nice and brief. Um, we'll start with the, the lady in the third row there, and then we'll come forwards afterwards. Um, Kamala, if... See you later. Sorry. I mean, I'm, I'm surprised that you were reluctant to write a play because your gift for dialogue is absolutely superb. I mean, the patter, Farouk's patter, and also the way the Home Secretary speaks, both to his son and to his underlings, the dialogue with his wife, etc. So if you don't write a, want to write a play, how about a screenplay, please? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the thing is, I discovered when trying to... I don't know, have you ever written plays or screenplays? I tried and it failed dismally. I'm sure you had far more success. <laughs> yeah, the, well, no, I, what I discovered when I was briefly thinking, can I do this as a play, is is the stuff that isn't, it's not that I thought, oh God, I can't do dialogue, it's, it's that I thought, I love the stuff that isn't dialogue, mm. and I love the interiority um, yeah. of a novel as well, and the form of it, you know, you find Same your idea, form, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Although dialogue, dialogue is such a big part yeah. of, your, of your novels, so yeah. you can see yeah. why, why yeah. the question is. Yeah. So, I mean, I do like the dialogue bit, but then I like all the other stuff. I yeah. mean, you know, the novel lets you be God in a way, yeah. you're doing it all, you're creating <laughs> the whole universe. Yeah. yeah. Okay, here at the front. Um, Hello, um, I the mic like up to you, Sorry, I would like to ask you um, the actual title of your book, Home mm. Fire. Mm. Is that actually rooted in Greek mythology, or is it something as basic as saying keeping the home fires burning back in the UK? Um, um, so I want it. I, I wish I, I'm. Sh 
Someone somewhere will tell me there's a Greek mythology root. I'd love to know that there is. Um, but it was actually an act of desperation because it was a, a Friday and my editor said, we've got a catalog going to press <laughs> on Monday. Oh, we the really, realities of We publishing. really need it. And so I had a lot of things. And one of my friends had said, what a pity that the fire next time had already been used because that would be great for your novel. So it put fire in my head. And then um, what I liked with Home Fire or the reason why it then stuck was, was that duality that on one hand it is keep the home fires burning, it's a sense of familiarity, familiality, you know, the, the sort of intimacy, and then on the other hand it's, it's a house on fire. And I thought, well, it's sort of both of them. I want to know how you got yours. I, yeah, from my, um, my teenage poem, actually, mm. but I did similarly, actually, my last novel, yeah. Always Shall Know, um, was originally called Melody She, mm. which is the main character's name, Melody yeah. She. And, um, my publisher said, Donald, um, in the UK, no one has a clue who you are, so they will think this is a book called Donald Ryan by Melody Shee. <laughs> <laughs> we, need a new, we need a new title, and we need it quick. And so I said to Yeats, WB Yeats inspire me, so I threw Yeats's click poems onto my desk, and I said, whatever page is open, when it's turned around, I will take a line from that page, and it was a drinking song, all we should know for truth, before we grow old and die. Thank you, Yeats. <laughs> Can, no, I, it's a terrible title. can I try that next time with the <laughs> Next time I need a so, title. So the poem you read out, I don't yeah. know if, if people heard, yeah. would, were able to hear that from Alone Quiet Sea was, yeah. was it part was of the verse of the poem. Yeah. Did you write that poem? Yeah. Right, okay, so because you, you, it was the, one of the characters had made up that poem that one another yes. character remembered. My dad had an awful habit of stealing poetry from my bedroom when I was a teenager and sending it to the local paper and having it published. <laughs> And I would swear, we had the same name, thank God, so I would swear to my friends, no, that's what my dad wrote the poem. I go, Are you writing poetry, Donald? No, guys, I swear to God. Great stuff. Okay, down in the front row here. We'll, we'll take some questions up from over there in a sec. Yeah. I was wondering, Camilla, how you felt the day Savi Gervese was made Home Secretary. <laughs> you must have felt truly omnipotent. Uh, it, that, that felt very strange, because I, I, when... When Amber Rudd stepped down, and, and you know they, we knew another one was going to be announced, and the columnist Nazreen Malik just wrote on Twitter too, it's Saja Javed question mark, and I read that and I thought, oh that would be weird, and, and but then I thought, it's going to be him, it is in there's no question, it is absolutely going to be him, um, and it did feel, and it's sort of now the strange thing because he'll make a pronouncement, and then there are a few people on Twitter who seem to now enjoy then tagging me and saying you know. Garamat Loan, who's my character. <laughs> and at points I start feeling very defensive about my guy and saying, you know, no, he wouldn't have said that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which came first, home fire or something? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Okay. Um, Donald, I read your, read your book, I read within a day. Um, I found the characters very authentic, I was really immersed in it. How quickly did it take you to write it? I'm sure it's not quite the same as reading it. You know, um, I heard Mike McCormack say um, a couple years ago that he had no memory of writing Solar Bones. I thought, yeah, right, Mike, you must remember writing it. <laughs> but actually, it was a kind of a furious six months of writing for that book. Um, but I had notes made from 2013 and little snatches of things written over the years between then and last year. And then in, a, in about six months, I, I, I wrote it, I think, yeah. Not writing all day, every day, because I don't do that, because I go crazy and get really grumpy. So, yeah. for Emory's sake, I don't do it. <laughs> it's, it's a deliciously slim novel, which packs such a, an incredible punch, as, as you'll know. I've read it. Right, one at the back, and then we'll come to, towards the front. Uh, I just wondered whether you ever regret get, getting British citizenship rather than Irish citizenship. Wow, <laughs> it seems that the Irish uh, immigrants are treated rather better than in England. Good question. Regret that. <laughs> well, if I'd had the right, I mean, the British citizenship was all I had the right to. And when people say, I, the day of the Brexit vote, um, a Mexican friend of mine, or not the day of, but within the week of, ran across the room to grab me by the shoulders and said, You must sue the British government. I said, I'm ready for it. On what grounds? And she said, she said, look, I know getting citizenship wasn't an easy process, and, and you thought you were getting citizenship of 27 countries, and instead you've got a one country, go and sue them. <laughs> so I that could be the basis. Yeah. I, know, I know a lobbyist. Yeah. You know a lobbyist. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think there's quite a few of us in the audience who will yeah, be coming to talk to you later. <laughs> okay, now I can see three more questions. I think we've just got time for all of them, if you can keep them brief. Yeah, one, two, three. So we'll start yeah. with you. Um, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm here um, by default this morning. I'm just in Edinburgh for the weekend, so I'm delighted to see uh, 
Camilla and Donald sharing the, sharing the same stage, so it's a great treat for me. I'm in the middle of Home Fire and, and really enjoying it. We had a conversation before we came in here about, about identity and, um, you know, when you, look at it, when you look at Ireland and the struggles that we have had, uh, and then uh, migration is very new to us, so we're becoming a totally different... It's a totally different Irishness, a totally different country, um, how people uh, are assimilated into the country. And then looking at your book, Camilla, and, and um, the, 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 dare I say, the radical Muslims, British Muslims, and, and the liberal, and how, that, how, how, how are people really coming to terms with their identity? Is it Britishness? Is it... Uh, you know, uh, uh, an immigrant, a uh, Muslim, what, you know, okay. where is the core of that? So just, just, yeah, yeah. I don't Couple. at all see Brilliant. them as radical and liberal Muslims, though. I mean, I see them, they are all, you know, different characters who's, who are all, in, think of themselves as entirely British. Um, and then certain circumstances come along, um, which have to do with all kinds of things, including the way they are treated as Muslims. Um, you know, I mean, it's always talked about as if it is the immigrant's job to come and to do everything. As if the, the you know, the, I mean, I love what you said that in, Syrian, in Syria there's certain streets where the streets names are changed so that migrants can feel more at home. I think there's very much, um, you know, a very complicated relationship. But this idea that, look, you come, that there's a greengrocer who's in the book. Yeah who was an actual greengrocer, and I went around to his place in Preston Road, um, and he said, yeah, there are many, in this neighborhood, there have been many different migrants, it, you know, there used to be this, there used to be the, you know. He said, I'm a greengrocer. All I want to know is, do they cook at home? Do they need fresh produce? <laughs> what do they cook? Yeah. New waves of migrants come in, I find out what they need to cook, I have it in my, I stock in my shop, they come in, they're very happy to have it there, I'm very happy to have their customer. I thought, there's something in here that is just very sensible yeah. um, about the way, about the way of thinking about it, rather than you know, are you becoming going to become like us? If you're not like us, will it change who we are? Yeah. I don't know any nation which hasn't changed and keeps changing and needs yeah. to keep changing. I thought actually know. of Annie uh, McGuire yeah. reading your book because Annie McGuire, Annie McGuire had pictures of the Queen in her house. Yeah. You know, she loved the royal family. Mm. She saw herself as being completely British. She was arrested in prison for being a bomb maker, wrongly, yeah. for the yeah. IRA, you know, yeah. and in prison for years. Yeah. I mean, I know, I mean, relations of mine who left Ireland to go to England in the 70s were presumed to be in the IRA or to have some affiliation mm. or sympathy for the IRA because yeah. you were Irish. And yeah. there's, there's such strong echoes. I mean, I think there, there are those elements for every nation that has, a, you know, a strong history of immigration from yeah. the nation, the country to go to, they will be suspected. Mm. Yeah. Of course, I mean, it's, it's far more stark for some groups than others. Yeah. yeah. Okay, look, I, I'm, I can see time is ticking, and, and I will take both of these questions at once, if you don't mind. Uh, just very quick questions. I just, um, I'm reading Donald Ryan's book, and I just wondered, there seemed to be a couple of times where you mentioned be kind at the very start, and then in Lampy's story, and I wondered if that was purposeful, like you wanted to have that to be the message yeah. of the book or something like that. Kind of. I mean, uh, okay. I, I, again, it's actually described as trite and saccharine for this to be the message. But to me, it's the most important message in life. It's the most important le lesson for. It's the most important thing about existing. I think is to be kind. It's the it's the answer to every single problem humanity has. Mm. It starts with kindness and and the effort to be kind. The one thing I know for truth, for for absolute certainty, the one certitude I hold dear, is that no one should ever hurt anybody else, and everybody should be kind. Okay. That's all we need to do as humans. The very briefest question. And I don't know how much of a brief answer you can have this, but um, it seems like both of your novels are very much written out of crisis, and certainly, Donal, your career is often being sort of contextualised in terms of sort of post-collapse mm. um, writing in Ireland. And I was wondering if, as writers, you feel like the novel is a reaction to crisis, maybe particularly in this day and age. One word answer. <laughs> Look, the novel likes conflict. When people are happy, the novel really doesn't know what to do with them. 
I've got to cut you off. I'm so sorry. Uh, there's so much to talk about here. Uh, there are lots of cliches written about novels, lots of uh, reviewers who, who write nonsense, and very often <laughs> writers are described as necessary. But I think uh, that, that's the word I would like to use about both of these novelists and their novels. Necessary angels. Please give Kamala Shamsi and Donald Ryan a huge round of applause. Come, come and talk more to us in the signing tent across the way where both of them will be signing their books. Thanks. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.